and welcome to the Chorus in the Chaos podcast. My name is Jack, and this evening I want to record a little bonus episode um, related to the rich man and Lazarus, and specifically looking at the poetry that Jesus gives us in this text. Uh, recently, I was preaching through this text, and as I was studying it in preparation for the sermon, something that became abundantly clear to me was uh, the beautiful poetry that Jesus gives us in this parable. It was something, until I'd really dug into it, I just you know missed, frankly. I just kind of glossed over. But there's some incredible depth and brilliance to the text. So uh, before we go any further, let me, let me just read this to you. Let me read The Rich Man and Lazarus. I'm reading out of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16, 19 through 31. There was a rich man clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime receive good things, and Lazarus in a like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. You know, for centuries, scholars have debated whether the Jesus' story of the rich man and Lazarus is a parable or an account of true historical narrative. And thankfully, I would say, regardless, uh, of whichever side of the fence one falls on, it doesn't really change the clarity of the message of this story. You know, both hermeneutical approaches, when you study this, you're, you'll pretty clear warnings about the eternal consequences of sin and the hope we have in the gospel as preserved in Holy Scripture. I mean, truly, t t take a moment and just be grateful. The perspicuity, per perspicuity of God's word, excuse me, is a gift to his people. The clarity of his word is truly a gift. But I'll say, you know, for the for those that hold the historical narrative point of view, one of the primary arguments that those uh, that hold that view bring up is that Jesus uses specific names in the text, and this is not the case for most, if not all, of other G Jesus's other parables. Instead of proper names, characters are typically given descriptive archetype titles, such as the dishonest manager or the prodigal son, describing a type of person, right? But the giving of a proper name is a pretty compelling argument for the historical point of view. If you want to, if you want to argue that this was a historical narrative, Jesus is telling a story that actually happened. The fact that he gives specific names, like Lazarus, he names the person. You know, that's a pretty compelling argument. 
Yet despite this, uh, after quite a bit of study, I, I still firmly hold to the notion that I think this is a parable. And again, I'll repeat, I, whether it is or isn't, it doesn't change the message of the, of the text. Like it's pretty clear what that is. So we can be grateful for that. But as I lean towards, you know, trying to evaluate this, I fall and err towards on the side of poetry. And I think it's because the spectacular nature of the poetry, when you study it, you see it. Just the beautiful way that Jesus uses poetic type arguments in this text really makes me feel like it's a parable. And I think that poetic beauty is something that's maybe been overlooked by a lot of commentators. It's not something I was really aware of, like I said earlier, until I, until I dug into it. And, you know, all that to say, one of the amazing things about scripture is when you study it and you dig in, you truly begin to see and highlight the infinite breadth and brilliance of the word of God. Truly beautiful. The first thing I want to look at as we think about the poetry here is, is juxtaposition. Jesus uses the juxtaposition of characters. And I'll say that juxtaposition is a pretty powerful communication tool. And what that is, it's basically contrasting two unlike things. When you put these two unlike things together, we can glean more than if you were just looking at these things individually or by themselves. And that's exactly what Jesus does in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. The two characters, being the rich man and Lazarus, kind of rely on each other to teach the message of the parable. And, and I want you to notice something. Notice that, uh, to take the rich man and his crimes, right? Did you notice that Jesus never directly condemns the rich man's actions? In the previous parable before this one, if you were to read the chapter earlier, uh, it's called, I mentioned it earlier, it's called the dishonest manager. And you can read that and you can see, oh, this person outwardly behaves dishonestly. But in this text, Jesus manages to effectively build a case against the rich man by holding him up against his counterpart, Lazarus. He doesn't say anything specifically. He doesn't directly say, here, are, here is how this man is behaving false. But it's by holding him up through the through juxtaposition to Lazarus that we see his crimes. I mean, tr truly, it's kind of brilliant storytelling when you when you think about it. And writers often refer to this type of juxtaposition as a foil. That's the word that they use, meaning that the two characters and their qualities are only rightly understood when you look at them side by side. Well, what does Jesus tell us about them? Well, Jesus tells us that the rich man is clothed in purple and fine linen and that he feasted sumptuously every day. And Lazarus, well, comparatively, Jesus tells us that instead of being covered with fine clothes, he's covered with sores. And instead of feasting every day, he's starving. It says in verse uh, 21 that he desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. The rich man's behavior, when isolated, is not really compelling. He dresses nice and eats a lot. Like, we get that. Yet with the juxtaposition of the plight of Lazarus and his condition, the only then is the heinousness of the rich man's crime on full display. He is clearly a self-absorbed man who lacks any sort of compassion and kindness. You know, I'm reminded of uh, Proverbs 14.31, which reads, Whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. The great or the rich man has greatly neglected his poor neighbor Lazarus. In his conduct, in doing so, he has shown contempt for God. Friends, the rich man sinned against a holy and just God. 
And I think the, the depth of the crime here is, is emphasized when Jesus adds this really interesting element of the dogs in verse 21. Jesus says, moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. It's kind of a strange, strange thing to add. And it's a strange, you know, insert of, of a fact, right? But in this culture, dogs were viewed as, as, you know, a little more than troublesome scavengers. I mean, the Jews and, and, and the, the people in this time looked upon disdain with dogs. They were among the dregs of the animals. They were scavengers. They didn't like them. They were dirty. They didn't want them around. Not like we love, we love dogs today, right? Not, not then. And, and Jesus, again, uses this distinction to point out how wicked the rich man is. He's using a juxtaposition. Now he's setting the rich man up against dogs. The detestable dogs demonstrate more kindness and more compassion towards Lazarus than the rich man. Jesus continues his use of the foil technique of juxtaposition in the second scene of the parable. You know, we read that both characters have died and you see that their positions, you, you see this as you compare the, you compare the, the characters, their positions begin to invert. The rich man is buried while Lazarus is carried by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man who once enjoyed a life of comfort is now in Hades in torment, whereas Lazarus is, is at Abraham's side enjoying heavenly prosperity. And remarkably, with this inversion, we see that the rich man has now become the beggar. He's asking for a single drop of water to cool his tongue in verse 24. And Jesus's ability to teach in parable via contrast here is truly brilliant. I mean, it's just brilliant storytelling. And just a handful of verses using juxtaposition largely as his tool, Jesus paints a very poignant picture of two men, their lives, and their eternal states, and the implications for the reader or the hearer of this, of this parable. I mean, it's just nothing short of profound. There's so much depth here that are just packed into a handful of verses. It, and I would be amiss if I didn't speak to the horror of this scene. Like, you, know, you can't gloss over that. Jesus is building just a, a scene of terror, right? As he's rendering the story together. Using collocation, we're, we're reminded of the eternal weight of sin and judgment. I think it was C.S. Lewis who once said that I've never met a mere mortal. I think it was he who said that. And we see that here. We perceive that here through this tale that Jesus is reminding us that the human soul is eternal. And one day, every single person will stand before God and have to give an account. And the rich man is now paying the eternal price for his sins. And as verse 24 says, he is in anguish in this flame. Consider, consider for a moment the vivid, dramatic imagery that Jesus is using as he, as he tells us the story. Jesus, there's, there's one verse in here, verse 23, and it's, you know, I think about this verse and I just kind of imagine, imagine the scene to a point, but it says, Jesus says he, being the rich man, lifted his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. What a moment of sheer terror. I mean, that is a terrifying text. The, the rich man lifting his eyes, lifting his gaze, almost like he's coming awake for the first time to see the beggar that he once despised standing with the Jewish patriarch Abraham. The rich man looks around and he's surrounded in flame. He's, he's in anguish, it says. And the rich man begins begging and pleading for relief, yet he finds none. You can, you can almost hear the desperation and despair in the rich man's estate and his voice. He longs for help, but none will ever come. 
And Jesus, via, via uh, Abraham in the story, he gives us this, the, he seals the eternal fates of those men. He gives us this really terrifying text. He says, between you, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who would pass from here to you may not be able. And none may cross from here to us, appealing directly to the emotions of the reader. Jesus is urging us, urging the reader or the hearer of this to look to their own souls, examine your souls to ensure that you won't end up like the rich man in hell. And this use of vivid imagery is poetic. It's poetic. I'm not making light of it. It's poetic. It is very dramatic, the scene that Jesus is telling us. In, in, this, in this drama, this vivid imagery, this dramatic element continues into the final scene of the parable. And the rich man, you know, now he's dreadfully aware of his fixed eternal state. He begins to think about people other than himself, maybe for the first time ever, right? Maybe he's thinking about someone other than himself and he has this concern for his five brothers. And, and he says, then I beg you, father, to send him, Lazarus, to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come to this place of torment. Verse 27 and 28. Abraham refuses, and the rich man pleads again, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Verse 30. And for the original audience, the suggestion of someone rising from the dead would have been I mean, completely fantastical. Science fiction stuff, right? Death is fixed. No one comes back. Jesus has baited the audience, and then he sets the hook. With that, with that wild, again, just vivid, dramatic imagery. Now, this idea of a resurrection to us, because of Jesus, it's certainly a miracle. Any resurrection is, is a miracle, and it only happens for those with faith in Christ. But Jesus hasn't risen from the dead yet. Like, the idea that this can happen to anyone in this culture is just, you know, mind-blowing. So Jesus gives us this fact, and he baits the audience. And then he sets the hook. He says, in Abraham's reply, he says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, one could spend days, days writing and examining the theological implications of that response to the rich man's request to raise Lazarus from the dead. Yet the interest of our topic, because we're, we're looking here mostly at the poetry, but I do want to touch on it. You know, Jesus knows that the Pharisees are listening to this parable. They're in the audience. And I would argue they're probably the primary audience, or at least the target, primary target of this parable. See, the Pharisees con con consistently rejected who Jesus is and what he said. They hated him. They refused to listen to him before he went to the cross. And Jesus knows they'll reject him afterward, after he's raised from the dead. So there's an element of irony, an element of condemnation here directed towards those who will or are going to reject Jesus. He will soon be raised from the dead, and even that won't be enough for him. What they need is a new heart. Jesus knows this. He knows this. Furthermore, you know, this, this, this text and, 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 and Abraham's reply here from Moses and the prophets, you know, there's so much you could say here about sola scriptura and the sufficiency of scripture, because Jesus is pointing us back to scripture. It's here that we find the truth of the gospel and the hope of salvation in the scriptures. If we wish to escape hell, if we wish to, be, to find salvation and understand the path unto salvation, we must search the scriptures for they are sufficient. And all scriptures point to Jesus as the Messiah. You know, John 5, Jesus is speaking to the Jews and he says, 
Quote, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, and it is in they that they bear witness about me. Every word of the Bible is meant to glorify and point us back to Christ. He is the one who saves. He is the one who died on the cross to save his people from their sins. And that's why we study the Bible, because in it, we come to know about God, and through it, God saves. Paul tells us in Romans 1.16 that the gospel is the power of God into salvation. And in Romans 10.17, that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So when Jesus gives us reply, he says, we'll send Lazarus back from the dead. He says, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. He's saying, scripture is sufficient because everything in scripture points back to me. It's beautiful, just beautiful poetry, the way he's woven this together. And, and finally, I, I want to point one other poetic element. I think there's a lot here, but there's one other one that really st stuck out to me in, uh, in this text. You know, earlier I referenced the, the name given, the proper name given argument to those that hold the historical narrative point of view uh, that, you know, because a person is named, say Lazarus, there, there's an argument to say, well, a person's name, that's very unique. So this clearly must be an historical account. And I genuinely think that's an excellent point. It really is. However, for me, it only continues to add credibility to this being a parable. And the big question, well, why? Why would Jesus then take the exception and give a character a name in this parable and no other? Well, I mean, I don't know. But as I think about it, I think it could be that he's doing it for theological, doctrinal, and poetic beauty. You know, if you look up the name Lazarus, the word of the name literally means God has helped. Lazarus means God has helped. And that's magnificent. It's magnificent. Think about it for a moment in, in the poeticness of what this means. There's the theological element. There's the doctrinal element. Certainly all these things. There's even the narrative element, but there's a poetic element to it as well. The name Lazarus means God has helped. L Lazarus was a beggar in desperate need of someone to heal and save. He was a man who had no possessions. He really had nothing to offer anyone. He was destitute, diseased, he had nothing. But in the end, God has helped. God saved him. And, and spiritually speaking, we are all just like Lazarus. We're all beggars lying at the gate of the king. But unlike the wicked rich man in our parable, King Jesus sees us. He sees us in our, in our brokenness, in our diseased state, and he has compassion for us. And again, there's that juxtaposition. We can use this kind of a literary sense to compare Jesus being the good king next to the rich man being the wicked one. Jesus sees us. He has compassion for us. He comes outside. He heals our diseases. He picks us up. He carries us inside. He clothes us. He warms us up. He seats us at the royal table of the king. He feeds us and gives us drink. And in Christ, our every single need is met. So I'll end on this. For all who feel... Whatever situation you're in is beyond hope. I want you to remember Lazarus. Remember that God helps. God has helped. And, and in closing, I just, I'll quote Revelation 7, 16 through 17. In this heavenly promise, we have the vision of heaven here. And John writes, They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. 
For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Thanks so much. This has been Jack with the Chorus and the Chaos. <laughs>